Hi, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started today. If you're a Canadian financial advisor or planner who's fed up with their technology platform or just looking to make improvements in their tech platform, I got the event for you. One of my associations, the Financial Planning Association of Canada, is sponsoring the very first Canadian Advisor Tech Expo. It is a three-day event where you'll be able to see and hear from various vendors and various verticals as to what they have to offer people in this space. So if you're interested in checking it out, please visit the website at www.advisortechexpo.ca. And now on to today's show. Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, in keeping with the theme of open banking and other protocols we've talked about in the past, I have guests from the Financial Data Exchange. The Financial Data Exchange is an organization that works towards unifying the flow of data across different financial platforms. Clearly not a small task. And with that, here's my interview with Tom Carpenter and Jason Chomick of the Financial Data Exchange. Tom and Jason, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having us today, Jason. Glad to be yeah, here. Ple- pleasure to be on. Excellent. So gentlemen, one of you, please step forward and give me the elevator pitch on what FDX or Financial Data Exchange is all about. Absolutely. FDX is a a not-for-profit organization specializing in an open banking or open finance technical structure. So we've got an API that is open to to use. Uh, You don't necessarily have to be a member, but you can can freely use our, uh, our API in order to ensure the safe exchange of data between organizations. So essentially, you've created a platform for companies with their own disparate systems. As long as they can point the right data at the right endnote endpoint for the API, they can make basically make two systems talk to each other. Essentially, you're the babblefish. You're in the middle and translating everything in the middle. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the, the other way, my job is often to interpret uh, complicated tech to different mm-hmm. policymakers and regulators. And so I always like to use the Bluetooth example. Uh, Bluetooth was a standard put together by a bunch of different manufacturers of consumer electronics products. They needed a standard to make sure the consumer had choice, that the consumer was able to essentially use whichever product they wanted to. It was all going to work together. I didn't just have to buy Sony's products or just have to buy Apple's products. And I think we've seen the same thing with open banking and financial services, which is that the consumer wants choice and they want it all to work and they expect it all to just connect seamlessly. And so uh, FDX really sits under the hood in some respects as that Bluetooth standard to make sure that consumers are able to share and use and access their data in a secure and consumer-centric manner. So before we dive into the challenge that is, talk to me about the history of FDX. What was the genesis of the idea? So FDX really came together kind of, again, with that Bluetooth example. You had financial institutions, you had fintechs, you had financial data aggregators, and a bunch of stakeholders in between with a common set of problems. Uh, For financial institutions, screen scraping or credential-based access where a Mm -hmm. consumer shared their login credentials created an awful lot of uh, traffic on their systems coming through the front door. And they were concerned about the security of login credentials floating around. For aggregators and fintechs, it was about data quality. They could build good scrapers, but as soon as a screen changed or as soon as something broke, the app didn't work and the consumer didn't know why it didn't work. They just knew it wasn't working. And we know consumers have about a 10 second attention span when something doesn't work these days. And so you had a joint set of problems with a desire to come forward, even in a very competitive landscape and create a common standard via an API that the industry could work on together, that you had kind of governance structure that leveled the playing field among fintechs and financial institutions and aggregators so that the market could really determine the best way to 
deliver on this consumer demand. And that's where we started. Uh, launched in the fall of 2018 in the United States, launched in Canada about a little over a year ago in July of 2020, and uh, we're off to the races. So before we get started on some of the challenges, let's talk about the actual breadth of this. So are you specifically looking to deal primarily with banks, uh, credit card institutions? Like what level of breadth are you dealing with in terms of, because the financial space can incorporate everything from insurance to both property and casualty insurance to, to banking to lending. What are you looking at? So Jason, our, our standard has over 620 data elements currently. So it's got a huge breadth, including uh, tax information, financial information, personal information. And I believe, uh, Tom, correct if I'm wrong, it also has uh, the insurance items in it. And so we're always looking to expand that as well. So we've got working groups both in Canada and the U.S. that are always looking to then expand it to what the market demand is within within the different jurisdictions. Yeah, we, we often say, you know, open banking is, has become kind of the term of art, but we really started using open finance before it was cool because we felt like, hey, this is so much broader than banking data. As Jason just listed, uh, it's insurance, it's investments, it's tax, really a broad swath of information that is considered uh, financial information. And, you know, looking down the road into the crystal ball, we're really talking about open data. And I think open finance is probably the, the camel's nose under the tent of a broader set of use cases and a desire for consumers to access and use their data across a spectrum of industries. Largely agree, optimistically and hopefully agree. But let's talk about general reception. So the idea of an open protocol and it's the common format, the ability to plug into any wall socket without having to worry about, we still, don't get me wrong, we still deal with the other end of the connection issue with like, hey, is this thing work with USB-C, USB-A or lightning or Thunderbolt or whatever it is. We still have part of that, but at least we solve the into the wall socket. I don't have to have six different wall sockets in order to make things work. So totally understand that and the benefits of that, because this is a network effect issue, right? The more people who basically work with you, the more easy it becomes to transact within that network and the more valuable it becomes. But we're talking about it institutions that are notoriously slow to change, that basically have often seen the data as solely theirs. So there's a data rights issue in terms of how they, whether legislation agrees with them or not, and who have not exactly been the most tech innovative firms that there are, who may look at this as a lot to lose. So you have no doubt have a lot of friction when approaching these institutions. First off, how's the reception been? Am I making it sound too gloomy? And secondly, when they do start off in a negative position, what's the conversation to get them to move forward? So Jason, you know, it's uh, it's not all doom and gloom, of course. <laughs> I live in Canada. I have to think that, but continue. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a fellow Canadian. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's, so, you know, it's, it's definitely challenging. And especially you take a look at the uh, even fundamental differences between the U.S. and Canada with regards to legislation and where where we see that going. And you see a, a really interesting mix of, of feelings. Like you said, the uh, some of the financial institutions, they want to hold on to that data. But you also see ones that are that, that see the innovation. And with the fintechs and the other banks, and that's kind of the hook that that I always try to bring to to the meetings is you know what can we innovate? It's no longer about who can hold on to the data the longest. It's more about who can offer the the next great product and keep those customers long term or or get other customers. So really, you know, really just focus on the innovation side, and that's that's how I I kind of try to herd the cats. <laughs> and I would just add, I've had the privilege of being kind of at the 
at the table on the ground level of FTX was a part of the, the early meetings in 2017 with a much smaller group trying to figure out if this was actually going to take off or where where would you build this standard? Would it be at a at an industry org kind of controlled by the banks or would it be something controlled by the fintechs or can't, you know, could we pull this off and create a new entity that had a, an equal governance structure? And I'll say that the conversation has changed rather drastically in the three or four years since we've started this conversation and launched FDX, where you're exactly right. It started out kind of very adversarial, very, a ton of skepticism in the room about, you know, are we even, should we even be doing this at all? Are we basically just kind of allowing competition to flow freely right through, through our lobbies? And I think that's changed a lot. One, because the trust that's been built up from truly working together, even in a very competitive uh, marketplace, we're competing for customers, but realize the value of a common standard. And I think, uh, Jason, just the realities of you're not going to put this consumer demand for a bunch of different products and services and innovation back in the bottle. So I think you've had kind of the more traditional financial institutions uh, come to the table, warm up to the idea that, hey, this is an opportunity. This is not just a, a place where we have to be on our guard about everything. Uh, it's really a, a way for us to engage broadly and and still work with and service our customers. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I mentioned it several times on this podcast, but the the concept of uh, the, the Copernican revolution in banking and, and the shift for traditional mainline banks to move more into platform provide to be platform providers for smaller, more innovative, nimble firms that can that can speak to individual niches as opposed to try to market to the to the bulk uh, to the bulk of the population, and then be able to provide services that they were never able to because the economics weren't there or the ability to focus wasn't there. I'm a huge believer in that opportunity. I just at the same time I'm very skeptical of many, especially Canadian mainline banks. They're so used to owning everything. Right. And that's not Canada's not exceptional in that regard. There's a lot of countries around the world that have very highly concentrated banking systems, but they are just used to owning and dominating everything. And the idea of enablement, I think, is something that's got to be yeah, that, that may take uh, some some turnover in management before it gets there, quite honestly. So I think you're you're starting to see some of that that turn. You saw the report drop in 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 August in the and then you also saw both the liberals and the conservatives talking about it in their platform. So it, it got a bit of press over over the election and a little bit of momentum. We're seeing, you know, personally within within the organization, uh, we're we're seeing uh, greater and greater engagement since the report dropped and of course the federal election. So, you know, we're hoping that with the appointment of the open banking lead, that that momentum will continue. I'm hoping so, too. It's an ambitious timeline, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, the, the timeline is definitely ambitious, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was amusing. I do plan on actually going over that a little bit more in the podcast. All right. So basically what happens is, let's say you are successful and you get these people on board. I mean, I'm sure you have a number of fintechs and other startups who are just eagerly desperate to plug into a system like yours, a standard protocol, something that basically makes life a lot easier. But onboarding a lot of these institutions, let's also speak to either other issue. They're mainly run off very, very, very dated legacy systems. What are the challenges in actually being able to just actually plug into what it is you guys are doing? So there's a number of our members have already been working on their technology. And really for us, it's an open API. So they, they all need to need to build that out within their own timelines and their own, their own prioritization. But we're seeing more and more feedback from each one of our, each side, both the, the fintech side and the banking side. So we're we're seeing some progress there. 
but it is absolutely to your point it, it is difficult and it's it's not a light undertaking especially when you start thinking about the different security protocols and all the different pieces that need to go in place in order to make it happen but you know we've got you know a couple of key players that have been working at it for quite some time and uh and hopefully we'll we'll see the results of that uh in the near future i was just gonna add on that i mean I, you're exactly right i spent a lot of time talking to u.s policymakers on this exact question how long is it going to take how long do we move from a, a credential-based system to a API-based system? And why can't we just turn it on overnight? And you know, you can't it, do that with COBOL servers. That's right. why they continue. <laughs> it is there's a fair amount of education to say, hey, these systems take time. And and by the way, until and unless they are a compliance exercise, the dollars that it takes to stand these up are still competing with other priorities. Yeah. And so you do have a long tail. And I think the other interesting thing is you look at the, the entities, the large financial institutions, I mean, the larger players and how much difficulty they have, you magnify that by a factor of 10 when it comes to some of the smaller credit unions, smaller community financial institutions, some of the core technology providers. And so we look at this as a transition that is happening rapidly. I think you will start to see in Canada some of the same announced data deals that we've had in the U.S. In the U.S., we've had kind of this steady pace of announcements. Okay, we're we're doing a data deal. We're building out on the FDX standard, uh, but it does take time. And I hesitate to even predict a timeline, but we do, we've focused a little bit on the EMV chip card transition. Look at how long it took to go from MagStripe to chip and all the different waypoints in, in the process from the card manufacturer to the ATMs, to the retailers, to the gas stations. You've got a lot of adoption that you have to get before you can turn off an old technology to, to make the other ubiquitous. But even then in the US, it came down to the vendors being the, the laggards and it came down to the threat of them having to swallow the cost of fraud if they didn't convert, right? So unfortunately, I think a lot of this stuff as you said, it's in competition with other dollars, especially the smaller companies. And it's like, it's going to take a bit of a gun to the head situation from, from regulators and, and governments to force a lot of these guys across the finish line. Yeah, but, indeed. Uh, and uh, just been on, on calls recently with some of the regulators kind of asking these exact questions. You know, is it a principles-based approach to say, hey, you should use common standards. And if there are standards in the marketplace, they shall do X, or should it be a further kind of mandate of you've got a phased timeline, a phased implementation to adopt API standards. We've seen other jurisdictions around the world put very aggressive timelines in place on API adoption. It hasn't gone as well. Now, maybe they just needed some additional time, but these transitions, they're not overnight. You're still dealing with financial data and consumer expectations. So you got to balance all that out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's evident in, in Europe in many capacities. And first crack at it didn't kind of achieve everything they wanted to. Second crack at it didn't quite achieve everything they wanted to. It's one of those things where as long as we can get 80% of it or at least close to it in every stage, we'll slowly get there. But it's going to take a lot. I mean, and and you know, for those listening who don't understand the scale of this problem, we're talking about systems and servers and stuff that you know might be 50 years old in some instances, believe it or not. And in case of insurance companies, maybe even older than that. <laughs> but there's a lot of monochromatic screens still in the market in these institutions. And uh, that is not something that's, that plays well with your iPhone, that's for sure. So speaking of which, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to put you under the gun with a timeline, but you know, realistically, when do you at least think we'll start to see, like, well, let me take a rephrase the question. 
How much success do you think uh, we're starting to see trickle into the marketplace already based on integrations you've seen to date and implementations? Are you starting to get feedback from you know these vendors that, hey, we're okay, we, we got to this this point and hey, we're actually already starting to see the positivity, the positivity or the, the the ROI on what it is we just did. Are there any success stories to point at? So I would say what we have looked at from a success standpoint is we we measure a couple things. One, we measure how many consumer accounts. We don't say consumers because a consumer may have a bank account at TD and they may have a bank account at Scotia. And so how many consumer accounts have been transitioned mm. uh, from a credential-based access to the FTX API? Based on our most recent survey, we're at 22 million consumer accounts okay. uh, that have been transitioned. Now, what nobody has a great number for is well, how many consumers have actually shared their credentials at one time or another? Maybe it was a, a one-time app. Maybe they really wanted to get serious about budgeting in the new year, or maybe they're a prolific fintech user and, and have shared their credentials with a lot of apps. We generally estimate that somewhere in the realm of 90 to 110 million North American consumers have shared credentials at some time or another. So we still have a ways to go. And uh -huh. we were, we're really measuring across the ecosystem today. So we're not splitting, okay, these are US numbers, these are Canada numbers yet. So we still have a ways to go on that. But we do think we're making significant progress. And that metric that we've been asking two to three times a year is beginning to look a little bit more like a, like a hockey stick. And so we do think that that implementation is happening. We see it via the data deal announcements. We see it via the uptake of FDX standards. And we just know when we talk to the engineers and architects inside different entities and we say, hey, we're going to ask you the same questions that we did four months ago. How many people do you have on FDX? That number keeps going up. So, yeah, we think we're making a lot of progress. But as you said at the beginning, it's a network effect. So the more that we get, then we get a little bit more on top of that. And, and you grow kind of exponentially from there. Yeah, it's the old um, calculation of the value of a network is, uh, was it n to the squared or in the power squared, two squared? I'll have to look it up. Point is, is that everyone who's on there just suddenly now has access or to an easy way to communicate with everybody else who's on there. So the value just continues to grow exponentially. And I think you guys are bang on clearly on your KPI there. It's it's really comes down to how many people can utilize or are speaking the same language. That's really what this is about, right? This is about this is about getting everyone speaking the same language so that we can all communicate better. And that's not a small feat because I can't even imagine a total addressable market here. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, it's a 10 million, there's duplication, right? If I have accounts at three different places, I'm one person times three. I don't know what the average is in terms of addressable market, but that's going to be a very big number. So let's keep that hockey stick going, guys. Seriously. <laughs> Excellent. We're trying, Jason. We're trying every day. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I'm glad you are because yeah, thank God is it never needed. So I know time is a little constrained today, so I'm going to jump forward. You guys have given us a good uh, analysis of what it is you do. And basically, essentially that and frankly, you're the good guys, in my opinion. You're you're trying to grease the wheels and facilitate open banking's reality. There's three questions that I ask at the end of this that I think are also going to open up some interesting points that basically will help inform the consumer. The first one I have for you is if you had each of you, please answer this one at a time. If you had one wish for something you could change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody gets stumped at that one, so we may have to come back to it. I think my wish would probably be more data sharing agreements signed more quickly to for us to create scale quickly. 
I'm going to say more resources for more people to do all this work. It's extraordinary, extraordinarily kind of technical work that we're doing at FDX. We're still very much a shoestring organization. We're a nonprofit. We kind of live and die based on our membership dues of companies that really want to come in and get their hands dirty in our over 30 different working groups and task forces. So I'm going to use this opportunity to say we need more members so we can have some more resources and some more staff. Yeah. And looking at your membership fee table, given it's broken out by revenues, my goodness, are you guys a reasonable number? It's uh, it's very small, quite honestly. So yeah, I think it's interesting. So to address both your comments there, so more deals signed faster. And you know that that too is a hockey stick, right? Uh, the value of the network will grow, and we'll see more and more of that. And then, as for the resources, I'm sure right now, you know, especially in the early days, you guys were basically facilitated by a bunch of true believers who are willing to spend the time and take the time to get this all done. But again, I think you're 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 a snowball rolling down a hill at this point, right? It's just a matter of time before that momentum picks up and continues to go because this is one of the common global trends around the world, whether you want to call it open banking or open finance or just open data, period. It doesn't matter what jurisdiction I talk to. There's there's a push for something like this everywhere. And I don't think anyone wants to be left last because frankly, there's probably a massive economic penalty to pay for being well behind the curve on this. We certainly think so. And, and I think you put your finger on it. We usually identify the how and the and the what of open banking or open finance. The what is usually all the bigger policy questions, how it's defined, what are the guardrails, how much data is a consumer able to share or use or access or leverage for their benefit. And then the how is usually the stuff that's under the hood. How does my data move from point A to point B in a secure method in a way that I control and have awareness and transparency into, and how does it all just work? And so that's the how is really the the job of what FDX is doing. And you're exactly right. We no matter what type of open banking infrastructure is put in place or system is put in place around the world, the standard API is a function of all of them. You still need a, a method to get all that data and all those consumer data rights actually delivered. Yeah, I think a lot of this, quite honestly, I said it before, breaks down to what <laughs> the rights period. We talked about it from a compliance standpoint. We can all just start off on a simple common premise that the consumer has rights to their data and should be able to facilitate the sending of that data to whomever they please with a minimum amount of friction. And that can be entrenched, entrenched into law. Frankly, that is, that's the principle we should all be adhering to. And that's part of the motivation. And frankly, anytime someone wants to get into an argument with me about the opposite point, I get very, very annoyed. There is no such thing as benevolence and that's in that with that with the opposite viewpoint. The second question for you is what's been the biggest challenge in getting FDX to where it is today? I'd say as a, the newest member of, of the FDX team, I would say it's it's probably, like I said earlier, just herding those cats, making sure that both the fintechs and the banks are basically walking to the same drum. We have mm. the same end goal. And, uh, you know, and data, personal data security is number one, right? And how that that data gets moved around. And so, you know, I think that's probably, at least from my perception in the last couple of months, probably one of the one of the biggest things. Yeah, and I'll just piggyback on that to say trust. In the U.S., we had a head start on the Canadians. We've also had a bit of a vacuum to operate in. The you don't say. In the, yeah, CFPB in the U.S. has been monitoring, but not super active on this. And so we had a pretty long runway to work on the API standard. But even still, there's really, there's not an analog for banks and fintechs or really any industry and their disruptors to come together and, and work on a standard, even though in the marketplace, they see each other as mortal enemies in some ways. And so 
it takes a lot of work to build up that trust to say, oh, okay, we actually are all working on a common problem and a common solution. And so we're going to leave the the kind of market competition where it is and know that we're going to compete heavily. But when it comes to coming together to solve something that's going to be beneficial for the entire ecosystem, I can trust you. We can work together on this. Yep. And it's also, again, it's just the first off, tell me what it's like to have competition in a market. I'm not familiar with that. That's, uh, <laughs> that's what a surprise. But the oligopoly, didn't, it wasn't used to thinking this way. It's also just, again, I think fast forward 15, 20 years, if this plays out, they play this out correctly. They're going to go look back and think, what the heck were we ever, like, why did we do this faster? It's the mentality. I think it's a scarcity versus an abundance mentality in a lot of ways. And it's also the the, the hubris of thinking you can do everything yourself. There is no one major financial institution that speaks to everybody because when you speak to try to speak to everybody, you speak to no one because we're all different, right? Whereas we have plenty of use cases now where fintechs have targeted millennials or other demographics, or I've even seen some target, you know, some very, very specific use cases like builders within a certain geographic region or farmers and just be able to speak that language and just get in there so much more effectively than a traditional institution ever could. So I think understanding their limitations to actually service every human's need is, is, is very much in the way. Anyway, that's my soapbox. I'll get down from that. And the last question to ask you the both, both and this is the easiest, easiest one to answer. What excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting out of bed in the morning to keep on fighting the good fight? And I, I legitimately mean the good fight in this case, because this is a fight and it is for a good cause and it's going to take a while to win it. I think for me, the big thing, even just coming from F, coming to FDX, was just really knowing your role, right? Like I'm, I'm really here to facilitate open banking and and open data for Canadians and globally, so that as we take a look at interoperability between the Canada and the U.S. or or wherever else we might I might be wanting to do personally to be doing business, I want to be able to bring that to Canadians. And I'll answer by saying I spent uh, 20 years working in Washington, predominantly on kind of government affairs work and public policy, which moves at an absolute snail's pace. And you never have the expectation that any of your work is actually going to amount to anything. And so to kind of be on the forefront of some cutting edge connectivity in the financial services realm where you see real consumer benefit, you know, you see real consumers who have a better rate on their loan or who actually have access to credit when before they didn't or are able to actually see their accounts and their spending in front of them. So maybe they might have a chance at being a better a budgeter or make better financial decisions to be able to connect kind of some weedy tech work to real, real live benefits for consumers. It's kind of a rarity. So it's really exciting to be a part of and to be in on the ground floor of it and know that we really are empowering consumers to, to make better financial decisions and, and ultimately em, empower their lives. Yeah. The empowerment of life. I mean, you're absolutely right there. I think to just the single greatest obstacle with onboarding a client in my world is as a financial planner is always just data collection, right? And we go through this, anyone who's ever been through a mortgage application or God forbid, a small business loan application. Oh my God, you understand the pain of the number of rounds of information you're asked for and collecting it from all these disparate systems. And essentially that a lot of it just ends up taking from one financial institution and giving it to another. It's, it's a, it's a broken way of doing things, quite honestly. And um, being able to give people a 360 view of their lives, I think has so much potential for for enacting so much positive change. So gentlemen, I thank you for it and your effort, because frankly, like I said, uh, <laughs> open banking to me is one of the single most important business issues, if not data rights issues in the marketplace today. And I'm glad that 
guys like you are out there enabling it. So appreciate it. Awesome. Glad to be here, Jason. Thanks for having us today. And, uh, you know, look forward to chatting again soon. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. So that was my interview with Jason and Tom today from Financial Data Exchange. Hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you found it informative as well. I hope that you uh, you support their efforts as much as I do, because frankly, as I said before, open banking is a vitally important change happening around the world. Do you understand it better? I did a five-part series earlier this year on it. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting one, which led to a lot of very interesting off-air stories I can't share. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever's at your podcast. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.